this morning's message is actually more or less a continuation of disgruntled ducks <laughs> who need grace. <laughs> I had so much material, and um, I kept trying to change the message, but it wouldn't change. So <laughs> we're going to go with what God gave me. Grace for disgruntled ducks is really about understanding the place that anger has in our lives and that it does have a rightful place. What I hope you come away with this morning is this, that you would leave understanding that anger itself is an emotion, not a sin. That anger is meant to be a call to action. And the right action is to bring in that which is right or just according to Christ. And the right action should move us and others toward wholeness. We're not supposed to stay angry. But there is an exception for that. And we'll get to that. Anger is an appropriate response to injustice, to that which is wrong. When somebody threatens my life on the freeway, I don't have to think about being offended. <laughs> Anger comes immediately. It is a biological response. It's the way God created us. It's important for us to know that. Because you don't get rid of anger by trying to repent of it. <laughs> it doesn't go away just because you're like, I'm sorry I'm angry. Anger is a call to action. It's for us to bring in, to stop what is wrong and bring in what is right. To stop the injustice and bring in that which is of Christ. Anger is like a sneeze. You see, a sneeze is a response. If I get around pollen, I sneeze. I don't have to think about sneezing. It just happens. Sometimes anger is that way for us. It is a response to the right stimulus, usually a very unjust one. So the closer an injustice is to us, the more likely we are going to be angry. I brought up uh, the last time I ministered about the, the 14 people that were killed in California and how when I read that, I thought it was horrible. I prayed instantly, but I wasn't angry. I wasn't angry because I didn't know any of those people. Now, do I care? Yes. But the closer an injustice is to us, the more likely that anger is going to be our natural response. The purpose of anger is to call us to action. It's meant to energize us, to take up action, to stop the injustice, and then to bring in that which is right. When I'm on the freeway and somebody does something that brings anger, <laughs> if I understand, one, that anger is not my problem, it's just a response. It's supposed to call me to action. Now, I get to choose at that point if I'm going to have a right action or a wrong action. A flesh action may be to curse. <laughs> or to, uh, and I do mean curse, like, may bad things happen to you. One of my dad's favorite curses is, may the fleas of a thousand camels manifest in your armpit. <laughs> that would be a curse. That would, you know. <laughs> and that would be the flesh. <laughs> okay. God calls us to righteous action. When someone does something dangerous on the highway, we may not be able to change that, but we can change how it affects us. We can bring in the righteousness of Christ into that situation. One of my favorite scriptures, and I have to remind myself of this, Matthew 5, 43 and 44. This is Jesus speaking. Ye have heard it said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. If he had just stopped there, 
<laughs> we would have enough to do for the rest of our lives. <laughs> Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So this is the perfect response, especially when you're talking about an enemy and those that curse you and those that hate you, because as injustice comes near us, the response is likely to be anger. But our response needs to be righteousness. Even when I'm angry, I can pray the right things. We are not slaves to an emotion. Anger doesn't get to tell us what to do. Anger is not Lord. It is simply an emotion. And if we recognize that, because the Holy Spirit will help us recognize it's just an emotion, I get to choose my response. I have the power of the Holy Spirit, and I can bring the kingdom of God into that person's life. It's important that that's, we understand that's what we're called to do. We're called to overcome evil with good. We're not to be overcome by evil. We overcome evil with good. Overcoming evil with good is treating people with grace. That means we treat them in a way that they do not deserve. I love people who don't deserve to be loved. I bless people who don't deserve to be blessed. I am good to those people who don't deserve that I should be good to them. And nobody deserves to be prayed for. Nobody has earned that right. It is a gift from God. And he calls us to that kind of right action. Last time I ministered, I talked about forgiveness because there are things like that situation in California where there's nothing you can do about what has happened. Now, the government can take measures to make sure those kinds of things don't happen again. But what do the people do who've been affected? When something so horrible cannot be made right, it can only be forgiven. That's always the case. Everything has been forgiven through Jesus Christ. Justice has been met in Jesus Christ, but only in Jesus Christ. He's the one that gets to decide what happens in those situations. Whenever we talk about forgiveness and injustice, sometimes the question is, well, what do we do about criminals? <laughs> if I forgive them, do I still prosecute them? If you're doing it out of love. I can't tell you the testimonies, how many I've heard, where people were thankful that they got caught and sent to prison. Because their journey came to an end there. That old man came to an end. They found Jesus Christ. They found the freedom. They found what they were looking for. So it's not wrong to prosecute somebody who's done something wrong. Again, you have to do it because you love them. Because you want what's best for them, not because you want to get even. <laughs> Paul, speaking of the government, says this. That the government, in Romans 13, 4, it says this. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. For if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God a revenger to execute wrath upon them that do with evil. It is about justice. God loves justice. God doesn't want the poor oppressed. He doesn't want sex trafficking. He doesn't want injustice in this world. That's why he says those things are supposed to make us mad. We're supposed to be mad about those things so that we take appropriate and right action. And one of the very first ones is always got to be prayer. No matter what the injustice is, that should send us to our knees knowing that we are not powerless. We're not begging and pleading for God to change something. We're asking God to help us change things. He has empowered us to bring the kingdom of God into this world and change it. When it comes to justice and anger, we have to be careful not to get into vengeance. 
Vengeance is the infliction of pain on another in return for an injury or offense. It is getting even. And there is no such thing. There is no such thing as getting even. You will either underpay or overpay. You cannot get even. So you have to get right. <laughs> you got to go to the righteousness of the cross and understand that Jesus on his back took the whip that every sin has been thoroughly punished that whatever somebody has done or didn't do to you or unto you or for you was paid for and the only one who can make it right is Jesus Christ it's not up to us to make somebody else pay it is always our call to bring in the kingdom of God and to change things. In Romans 12, 19, the Apostle Paul says this, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. What this really means is, don't take justice into your own hands. We have the government for those kinds of things. And we're supposed to put them to work. They are ministers of our God to bring in that which is right and just. So, having said all of that, <laughs> I want to get to the rest of the message. Those are some points that the Lord wouldn't let me get beyond. It is right to prosecute those who are criminals. It is the right thing to do. At the same time, forgiving them for what they've done. God says society, the government, has the right to impose consequences. And what the Lord said to me, because I sometimes wonder about God and wrath and all of this kind of thing, and how does that work, and I know he's not mad, and all this good stuff. <laughs> how does this work, Lord? But the Lord said, all your sins are forgiven, right? Yeah, all of them are forgiven. He says, does that alleviate you from the consequences of your actions? Not at all. <laughs> not at all. And that's the point. There are always consequences to our actions. And so it is appropriate to prosecute when necessary, but it's always also appropriate to forgive. So where do we see in uh, scripture that Jesus became angry? Because he is our example. Did Jesus become angry? The answer is yes. That is good, because otherwise we would have to buy into the argument that anger is of itself a sin. If we never saw Jesus get angry, then we would have ground to say, that's right. But that's not what we see. Jesus was angry a lot at the Pharisees. <laughs> okay, because they were self-righteous. Uh, in Matthew 23, beginning in verse 13, it says this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would go in to enter. And it goes on. He says, woe to them, over and over and over and over again. Which is him saying, great grief is going to be yours. Now, he's not declaring that that's what he wants for them. He's just telling them, this is the result. These are the consequences of your actions. What you're doing is going to cause great grief, not only to you, but to others. That was his heart. His heart was always about love, even when he was angry. Jesus feels very strongly about people entering the kingdom. <laughs> and he feels very strongly when other people prevent others from coming into the kingdom. That's why he was angry. He was angry about what they were doing. He wasn't angry at them. He loves them and wants them to change. He knew that he could not show them the grace they needed because they would not accept grace. The only thing he could do is he could show them the law and how far they fell short in the hopes that their eyes would be opened and they would see that they needed a Savior. 
that the Messiah, what they needed was someone who could take away their sins, not someone who could take away the Romans. That's what they wanted. They wanted a Messiah who would change their government. He wanted to bring a Messiah who could change their hearts and their lives and their eternities forever. He, what he had for them was so much bigger and so much better. And they were so short-sighted and jealous. <laughs> they envied what he could do and what he displayed. They envied the popularity that he had. It was all about their selfishness. And he wanted desperately to change their hearts. That's why he was strong with them. Aren't we strong with our children when they get out of the way they should go? No, don't do this! <laughs> Why? Because we so love them. We would do anything to change their mind, anything to change their path, anything to change their heart. And sometimes because we so love them, we get angry. <laughs> we want so much for them. That's Jesus' heart. That's Jesus' heart. Jesus feels very strongly about people entering the kingdom. That's why he came. He came to bring God to man and man to God. Jesus was and is the intercessor. We know what he did on the cross, brought man and God together in him. The death, burial, and resurrection dealt with all sin in order to bring all men to God. All can come. All has been paid. All has been forgiven. They need only accept it. So where do we see anger in Jesus? There are several places. Usually you hear the tone with Jesus. But it does actually say in Scripture that he got angry. When the Pharisees wanted to trick Jesus, they wanted him to break the law by healing on the Sabbath. So they brought a man with a withered hand to synagogue, knowing Jesus couldn't resist. Don't you love that about Jesus? He just can't resist healing you. <laughs> That's what we've got to get that mindset. He can't resist healing. That's who he is. We don't have to beg him to do stuff. He can't resist. Amen? So they thought, we're going to trick Jesus. We'll make him break the Sabbath. And so Jesus asks them a very strange question. He sees the man with a withered hand, and he says to the Pharisees, so is it lawful to do good? or to do evil on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to give life or to kill? Now, I always thought, that's kind of obvious answer, isn't it, Jesus? <laughs> Why are you asking? I didn't get it. You see, the Jews believed that if you had the power within you to help somebody, and you stood by and did nothing, you were actually guilty of great sin. Because basically, if you had the power to help somebody, and you don't, and they die, then they died because you failed to help. So they recognized doing nothing was evil. They knew that. That's why Jesus says, what is lawful? To do good and give life? To do nothing and kill? That's why they were silent. When Jesus asked for an answer, they had nothing to say. And then he calls the man forward and says, stretch forth your hand, and he's made whole. But it says, Jesus was angry and grieved at their hearts. Angry and grieved. Those who were here before, we talked about Christmas tree anger. <laughs> that grieving brings forth anger. It's not something we do on purpose. It's something that happens in our brain. It's the way God made us. Something in us says, whatever causes grief is wrong. And our anger comes up and says, let me protect you. <laughs> And that's when we need to recognize that we only need Jesus to protect us, not our anger. 
it actually said Jesus was angry, not at them, but at what they were doing. That they would want to use somebody, that they were doing nothing to heal this man. They were doing nothing to help him. They were the ones that were guilty of great evil, and yet they wanted to condemn him for healing on the Sabbath. Crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. One of the other places that all scholars believe that he was angry, but we don't actually see the word in Scripture, the word angry, is when Jesus cleansed the temple. Now, he actually did this twice, once in the beginning of his ministry and once at the end. Obviously, they didn't listen, because if they had listened in the beginning, <laughs> he wouldn't have had to do it at the end. In fact, one of the scholars I read said that after he cleansed the temple the last time, they never set up shop there ever again until the temple was destroyed. It was never repeated. They got the message. <laughs> okay, but Scripture tells us that when Jesus saw what was happening at the temple, he got angry and he did something about it. Usually, there's only two or three verses when you look at all this, because it's in all four Gospels. And if you look in Matthew 21, beginning with verse 12, it says this. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all of them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. We read that and we go, Okay, what was the problem? Most churches have taken this scripture to mean that you shouldn't sell candy bars in church or have Tupperware parties in the basement, you know, things like that, which is, has nothing to do with this scripture. <laughs> has nothing to do with it. In the Greek, there are two words for the word temple. One is for the temple proper, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. That's the temple proper. But then there was all the surrounding properties, and that was a different word. The word they use here for temple is that second word. What it involves is all of the outer courts. The outermost part of what they called the temple area was the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles was the only place anybody and everybody could come to worship. Beyond that was the court of the Jewish women. Men and women usually worshipped in this area. Beyond that was the court of the Israelites, where the Jewish men alone would worship. Beyond that was the holy place for the priests. Beyond that was most holy place for the high priest. Now, if anyone went into a court that they were not allowed in, the penalty was death. Pretty stern rules. <laughs> so if you were a Gentile, you could not go into the court of the Jewish women. If you did, you would be executed by the temple police. Well, what happened was the Jews didn't have high regard for Gentiles, not even those who were worshiping the one true God. And so at Passover time, everyone would come to Jerusalem to worship. They would have to have an offering. They have to pay their temple tax, and they have to have an offering. So this is what the priesthood, and this is interesting, it was only the priesthood who was doing this. It wasn't Joe Schmo down the road who had extra sheep to sell. No, no, no. Inside the, the court of the Gentiles, the priesthood is the one who set up shop. They would change money for you. You had to pay your temple tax in a proper currency. You had to pay it in a shekel or half shekel. The Roman coin was not good enough, so you had to have your coins changed. So the priesthood would do this wonderful service for you. <laughs> yes, we will change your money into the right currency, and we will charge you nicely for that service. That wasn't so bad. 
But what they would also do is they would have animals, doves in particular, for sale because the poor would sacrifice doves. Okay, So not only are they gouging everybody that's coming in, regardless if you're a Jew or a Gentile, but they're gouging the poor. Outside the temple gate, you could buy your offering of two turtle doves for maybe what would be called four pennies. The average wage was three pennies a day. So it was a day's wage plus to buy your two dove, turtle doves for offering. But if you went inside the gate and tried to offer those turtle doves that you just bought outside, the priesthood would deem your doves unacceptable. You're going to have to buy our doves. <laughs> and they would charge them 75 pennies. Crazy. Six weeks wages for a poor person to be able to worship their God. This is what Jesus was seeing. He was saying that the priesthood, those who were supposed to be facilitating worship, were gouging the poor and interrupting the worship, preventing it from happening, because they had so filled the court of the Gentiles, there was no worship going on. There was only business. So that's why Jesus got angry. You see, what the closer an offense is to us, the more we get angry. What was close to his heart? His father and his people. And the priesthood, the priesthood was the one preventing people from entering to the kingdom, preventing them from coming and becoming whole, preventing them from coming and getting their needs met. That ticked Jesus right off. <laughs> because he wants our needs met. He's not mad at us. He's mad for us. He paid the ultimate price so we could have everything he bought and paid for. Salvation, healing, wholeness, provision, protection, deliverance, and eternity with God. And he wants everyone to have it. And he doesn't like it when people prevent others from entering in. So Jesus got angry. And he made a whip out of cords. In John 2.15 it says, After making a whip out of cords, he drove out all of them out of the temple, including the sheep and the cattle, and scattered the coins of the money changers and knocked over their tables. Jesus stopped the injustice. This was a grievous injustice. It was the most unjust thing you could do was to prevent a man from worshiping and coming into the presence of God. The Gentiles had no place else to worship. And Jesus brought in wholeness. Matthew is the only one that tells us the results of what happened. What he says is, after he drove them all out, after all the doves, all the money changers, everything is cleaned out, he drove them all out. It says the blind and the lame came and were healed and made whole. That's what the court of the Gentiles was supposed to do was to provide a way for people to meet with God and have God meet their needs. Worship is supposed to bring us into a place of wholeness. The truth is, we need to get angry too. Not at people. Not at circumstances. But at lack. Who was behind all of this money changing and gouging and stealing God's worship? Satan, of course. That is ultimately who's behind all evil, is Satan. He may stick his hand up somebody's back and <laughs> puppet them for a while, but it's still him. That helps us to understand that, that people are used of the enemy. They are deceived of the enemy. That the priesthood who was stealing from the poor 
and stealing the worship that belonged to God. Who was behind it? We know, Satan. We need to get mad. See, this is the only place where anger should not be resolved. Our brain says, find resolution. Whenever we're angry, our brain is always looking for the right, the justice, the wholeness. That we're made that way. We're made to seek resolution. In fact, anger won't go away unless it is resolved. It just keeps coming back until we get healed, until we get wholeness. But is Satan still running around loose? Is he still active? The truth is he is. That should make us angry. <laughs> because Jesus has given us all his power and authority to take power, take dominion in this world and in our lives. We should be angry at lack, at sin, at poverty, at whatever you know comes from the evil one. That's what we should be mad at. And we should get angry enough to do something about it. What is it that we need to drive out of our own life? We have the power and authority to do it. Second Peter 1.3 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. I chose the ESV version because it says, His divine power has granted. I think the King James says, has given. But I think sometimes in our sensory world we say, I have it! I can't see it, but I have it somewhere. <laughs> Let me check my pocket. I have it, whatever the it is I need. I know it's there. I think it actually helped me with this version. It's granted. It's provided. We say, Lord, I need. He says, it's granted. Now, what do you have to do to receive it? It's granted. So the very first thing we need to do, remember, is that grace has granted us whatever we need. We start from victory, but we must be convinced of this. We must be convinced that it's granted. We must be convinced that he says all of the promises are yes and amen. The second thing we must do is learn and understand how to receive. Galatians 3.2 says this. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive by works of the law or by the hearing with faith. Again, this is the ESV version. Now, I left out two words on purpose because I want your attention to be focused on receiving. Did you receive the Spirit? Because he's asking them, how is it you received the Spirit? Did God give you the Spirit of God because you did certain things and made it happen? Or because you heard with faith? Now, I like this because one of my questions to the Lord is, Lord, I want to walk like Jesus. I want to lay hands on everybody. I want to see everybody I lay hands on get well. I want to walk like Jesus. And he says, I can. Okay, Lord, what am I going to do to do this? And this is what I want. I receive by hearing with faith. Hearing with faith. Romans 10, 17 says this, So faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And cometh isn't there. The translators put it there to help us understand what he's saying. So faith by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith and hearing go hand in hand. I know this is like Faith 101 for some of us, but sometimes I need to go back to Faith 101. <laughs> I need to renew my mind again and say, no, this is how this works. Galatians 3.5 says this, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you 
do so by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith. Now, having come out of the word of faith movement, I always looked at faith this way. I hear the word, and 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 then suddenly, all of a sudden, poof, faith happens. And like, okay, that's how it works, that's what I'll do. But Galatians 2.20 says this, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet, not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by the faith of the Son of God. I have Jesus' faith, okay? I have to be convinced that my faith and his faith is the same faith, and his faith and my faith will do the same things. But how do I get my faith activated? That's the word I like to use for Romans 10, 17. So then faith is activated by hearing. Perhaps if I'm not getting the same results Jesus got, maybe I need to do something about my hearing. Hebrews 5.11 says this, Of whom we have many things to say, he was talking about Melchizedek, and hard to be understood or uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. And that means to be slothful or lazy of hearing. Is it possible that I don't hear enough? That I'm not activating my faith? Now, Jesus says, I have faith, but in order to make my faith become my servant, I've got to feed it the word. I have all the faith I need, but how do I get the engine running? (laughs) I've got to give it the word, because he says my faith is active. I already have my faith. I'm not working, 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 trying to get faith. (laughs) Because in my mind, what that meant was it's the same process, but with a different result. I put the word in, and I put the word in, and I put the word in, but I don't think anything's really happening until I reach that magic pinnacle where faith happens. (laughs) And that's what I thought. If I put enough word in me, eventually I'll have faith. But Jesus says that's backwards. I have faith, but I activate my faith with the word. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says this, For this cause also we thank God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The word goes to work. It's already producing something. See, in my mind, it was always work, 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 work to have faith, so that once I get faith, it'll produce something. That's backwards. I add the word to my faith. My faith automatically goes to work. Now, does that mean I instantly see my result? No. Not usually. (laughs) I like it when it happens that way, but it doesn't always happen that way. And what the Lord showed me was uh, the parable of the growing seed. It's only in Mark. And it says this. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Now, right before this, Jesus had the parable of the sower. So he's already defined what these terms mean. We already know that the seed is the word of God and the ground is our heart. And it says, If a man should scatter seed on the ground, 
He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. What the Lord began to minister to me was, I wasn't putting the word in trying to make faith happen. I already have all the faith I need, but I do need to put my faith to work. It says, faith goes to work. It becomes powerfully effective when we feed our faith the word of God. And it starts to produce right away, even if you can't see it. It says it produces a little blade of grass first. You see, sometimes when we don't see an instant result, we think nothing has happened. He says, no, no, no. Your faith is, is working on whatever it is you're believing for. Sometimes it's about orchestration. Sometimes it's about divine instructions. Whatever it is, God is at work. And we understand that our faith goes to work when we feed our faith the word. It'll change what you expect when you pray. Because you'll say, Jesus, these are your hands. <laughs> Lay them on those people. And you don't see any difference. I don't care. Because I know the word's working. There's a blade of grass in there somewhere. <laughs> Something is changing because Jesus says all of the promises are yes and amen. He says, my word never fails. My word is powerfully effective. When we don't see with our eyes, and we can't let our eyes tell us what we believe. We have to let Jesus tell us what we believe. So we need to get angry. We need to get angry at the lack. We need to get angry at the poverty. We need to get angry at the injustices. We need to get angry at the power of the enemy that is at work in our life and say, look, I don't have to put up with you. I don't have to put up with sickness in my body. I don't have to put up with a deficit in my checkbook. I don't have to put up with this. We have to get angry because angry is a call to action. And I think what happens is we get apathetic. My husband told us stories a few years back about what happens to people when they see the same thing over and over again. It goes something like this. There's trash in the front yard. You see it there. Somebody has thrown trash in your yard, but you are late for work. So you just leave it there. I'll get it later. Well, you come home and it's still there, but now you're late for dinner. So I'll get it later. The next day, you're late for work again. You just keep bypassing the thing you see. It says after you've seen that thing there three times, your brain goes, oh, that's not important anymore. You'll get to it when you get to it. Your brain suddenly lowers the fact that it's the distraction or it shouldn't be there. Your brain goes, this is not important to you. It's not important to me either. What are you looking at every day in your life and you fail to see it for what it is? Something that doesn't belong there. Sickness does not belong in our body. Poverty does not belong in our life. Lack does not belong in our life. Whatever thing <laughs> that you want to change in your life, you're going to have to get mad at it. We should get mad at it. Jesus got mad at it. He wanted his people to have everything they had coming to them. They wanted them to walk in wholeness and fullness and have every need met. And if that's not what our life is, why are we not angry about this? We should be. Jesus is. He died to give it all to us. He's not mad at us. He's mad for us. He's mad about us. He loves us with this crazy, irresistible love. And he wants us to enjoy all of his goodness. 
all that he has. But Jesus had to drive out the things that didn't belong there. He had the power and authority. And the fact that they never went back to doing that again, says they saw it too. What if we could say that? I drove out poverty, and I'm never going to see it again. I drove out sickness, and I'm never going to see that again. I drove out hate, and I'm never going to see that again. I drove out lust, and I'm never going to see that again. Because I'm going to feed my faith with the Word, and I'm not going to sit down and be quiet. I'm going to take my power and my authority, and I'm going to walk in this earth the way Jesus meant me to, in victory over all the power of the enemy. Anger is a call to action. But if you're not angry, guess what you're going to do? You're going to walk right by because you're used to being there. So my challenge for this year is this. Get mad. Get mad at that stuff that doesn't belong in your life. Get mad at it. It's stealing you. Recognize what it is. It is the power of darkness creeping into your life. And as long as we are apathetic, it will continue to grow. Satan doesn't want you sick. He wants you dead. That's what he wants. But if he'll take the little bit that he can get. But if we're not mad, then we're not using our power and authority the way we're supposed to. We have the kingdom of God available to us. It's within us. We have the faith it takes to activate it to activate the kingdom and release it. And he says, the only way you, only thing you gotta do is feed your faith the word. So if you're sick, you feed your faith scriptures on healing. If you have poverty or lack, whatever that area is, don't let that thing stay in your yard. <laughs> Get your word out. Understand that first there's a blade, then there's a stalk, then there's a, a head, and then it becomes right. And that means that's when you see it in its fullness. Your faith is always working if you're feeding it the word. Amen? So, the challenge this year is what in your life do you want to kick out? What in your life do you want to have change? You have everything you need. You have the seed to make it grow. It's all up to us. It's not up to God. It's not up to God. He's already granted everything we have needed. Amen? Father God, I thank you for your word that is powerful and effective. Lord, remind us these are the very words of God. They're not normal words. They're not idle words. They're not useless words. They're powerful and effective. They change everything. They change everything in us and for us. Father God, I ask that you would, you Holy Spirit, would challenge us and remind us to not let things stay in our yard just because we're busy, just because there's so much to do. That Father God, we would get angry and we would recognize those things as the power of darkness, that our eyes would be open to them and we would say, not in my house, not in my yard, not in my body, not in my bank account, not in my kingdom. I live in the kingdom of heaven. I have all the resources of heaven, and I will not, I will not stand for less than that. Father God, I ask that you give us a hunger for your word. We to understand that it is life. It is life. It is healing. It is provision. It is everything we need. I thank you, Father God, for the bounty that you have given us. And Lord, I thank you 
most of all for Jesus. Thank you that He so loves us, that He was willing to drive out the powers of darkness on our behalf, that He conquered the enemy, and He asks us just to go around stepping on His head. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for all that you have provided, all you have done. And I ask you to challenge me to grow, to grow those seeds, not only for me and my family, but for all those I meet. So that when I come across a man with a withered hand, I don't stand by and do nothing. I understand I have the power of the kingdom. The same Jesus who healed that man will heal everyone we lay hands on. Help us to be convinced that nothing really is impossible. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.